I'd like to welcome everyone to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay here uh, with uh, a, a, a woman who's uh, done it all, and she's uh, she has 16 books out. The next one coming out, the 17th one, will be a a memoir, which is much different than anything she's written. And uh, I always ask people whether it's therapeutic uh, or or painful or, or cathartic. Uh, I imagine all of those things could could apply. But uh, without further ado, let me uh, introduce our host each and every week, the subject of a documentary, and uh, again, the author of some great books, and the next one will be a memoir. Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg, how are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Anticipating the uh, the cold uh, and possibly bad weather that's coming in by Thursday this week. Uh, and hoping that the Texas electrical grid can handle it because it's going to be uh, 18 by uh, by Thursday night. Uh, so from 43, which it is now, uh, to 18 uh, in one day, and that's uh, going to be quite a trial. Yeah, that's Texas. Wow, you know that's uh, that's a wow. Um, you know we're at 37 now, but we're not expected to see. Uh, uh, C18 for a while, as far as I know, but uh, I could I could be wrong. But uh, all right, well I hope uh, that governor of yours has that that grid uh, all protected and uh, and everything will be okay there. So uh, praying for you as Christmas approaches, six days away. Thank you. Yes, we need it. Yeah. I, now you you were talking off mic about uh, uh, possibly reading from your memoir, which I I think is a great idea. Yes, uh, this is a an excerpt. Actually, it's a few uh, selections about our trip, our move from California to Arkansas to the Ozarks. Mm. And this happened in uh, in 1945. My dad had been sent home from uh, the European Theater of Battle. Uh, he was an army engineer, and he was at the front of the uh, Battle of France and had gotten uh, badly wounded in, at the Battle of the Bulge and had to be sent home. And uh, he had been wounded in the stomach, and it was a wound that never healed, and it ultimately killed him. So he he didn't die on the battlefield, but he died because of the battlefield. And anyway, in the meantime, uh, he had been appointed uh, uh, ordinance officer at Camp San Luis Obispo in California, and I had spent a year in California schools, loving it. I was uh, in the orchestra there, uh, the student orchestra, and we actually played for the high school graduation. Uh, We were the music for it. We were that good, and we did all right. Uh, we played Rhapsody in Blue, <laughs> and uh, yeah. uh, anyhow, I had a great time there, but my dad uh, knew that he didn't have too many uh, years to go, he figured, and he had put that down payment on a piece of land, 365 acres of beautiful land in the Ozark Mountains, and uh, he decided that we would just pick up our, our all our goods and chattels and move there. 
and so I will start reading about the adventures we had uh, when we got there. Wow. So, the, the war, here I go. Here we go. The war had come in the meantime and had just ended. Dad had served one full year at Fort San Luis Obispo. There was no longer a pressing need for his service, so he took medical leave and we set out for Arkansas. He would soon apply for medical retirement. This was no temporary vacation trip. He and mother had agreed they would occupy the land in Arkansas and farm it if possible, ranch it if not. It had not been occupied since the Civil War, at least not for any long period. But there were buildings and a serviceable well. Dad hitched the trailer that had stood in Grandma's driveway during the war years. We loaded it with what furniture and other goods we had accumulated and struck out for the Ozarks. I had not seen our new home before we bumped over the half mile of wagon track that led to the property from County Road 48 that served the area. I was dismayed by what I saw. The entrance to our land was marked by a cattle guard made of rusty old iron pipes flanked by wooden posts and the remnants of a barbed wire fence on one side, newer web wire and barbed wire on the other. We bumped across the cattle guard and parked. We got out and assessed our property. The main structures were a house and a half-collapsed barn, two sheds, one with an attached outhouse, completed the assemblies. The house and barn were built of native oak logs, the, uh, the sheds of clapboard. All the roofs would later prove to be watertight. I could already see that the house had a corrugated tin roof. The barn and sheds had wood shingle, probably cedar. The caulking between the logs of the house had long fallen out, and I imagined the wind whistling freely through the structure. The barn, a huge building, resembled a monster struggling to rise, its head, shoulders, and front legs erect, the hindquarters prone on the ground. Oddly, the half still standing retained its caulking. I turned to my dad, standing next to me. Why is the barn, half of it at least, in better shape than the house? Harry, the, uh, the real estate agent, told me the neighboring farmers used its loft for storing the hay they illegally reaped on the fields over there. He pointed to an open area on the southwest. We set out to give the place a closer look. The barn was closest. A relatively new fence of webbed wires uh, topped with two strands of barbed wire surrounded it, and two sturdy 10-foot-wide gates opened on our side and opposite into the fields beyond. We entered the barn through a huge sliding door into a hallway with two usable stalls on the left, two on the right with a corn crib in between. I climbed the ladder in the hallway to the loft. Half of the space was packed with the illegally stored hay, now old and dry, but still smelling faintly aromatic. It was probably still usable, but barely. There was plenty of space left between that and the open front end of the loft to store new hay. 
I climbed down and joined my parents already walking down to the house. It looked to be around 35 feet by 25 with a small clapboard lean-to on the left side, a covered porch half its length on the right. I ran my hands up and down the pillars of the porch. They were smooth and seemed to be cedar tree trunks stripped of their bark. The house had no floor. The lean-to and porch still did. Two doorway openings gaped on the front and side along with holes for windows. Weeds grew tall all around and inside the house. The well stood on the right side with a four-foot wall of native stone, a pulley, and a dented tin bucket. A few, year, a few yards beyond it rose a large mound covered with weeds, grass, and vines. Dad and I stripped the vegetation from the near side and discovered a wooden door underneath. Dad opened the door and a puff <coughs> and a puff of cold, dank smelling air struck our faces. <coughs> we had discovered the root cellar and tornado a dark cave full of cobwebs, black widow spiders, and who knew what else. We decided to leave further exploration for later. Much later. Dad calculated what we would need to get started making a home from the remains. We unloaded the furniture and other belongings in the barn for temporary storage. While he was gone with a now-empty trailer to Mountain Home, the nearest source of lumber and supplies, Mom and I inspected the sheds and cleared one of rusted machine parts, cans, and bottles. That shed still had a solid hardwood floor and usable shelves. The other shed, the one with the outhouse attached, had no floor but a sturdy scaffold where chickens could roost. It had been a chicken coop. We used flails to cut the weeds inside and around the house. We could tell from the amount of grass growing between the weeds that if we kept it mown, we would soon have a lawn. By the time Father returned with, with loaded trailer, followed by a truck loaded with lumber, doors, windows, bags of concrete, fencing, and much else, we had the place cleaned up and ready to begin reconstruction. We caulked the log, logs with a white concrete mixture, then laid the floor using pine, not hardwood. The floor in the lean-to had a gap between it and the wall of the house, so we fixed that and made sure the rest was clean, in, uh, insect and mouse proof. We worked at least two weeks before we were able to move into the house. We had been sleeping in an umbrella tent up to that time, cooking on a camp stove, lighting our evenings with a Coleman lamp. We continued cooking the same way for a while, even after moving into the house. We installed the doors and the new windows with their screens and were happy not to share our evenings with so many insects and the occasional mouse or snake. We used plywood to cover the inner walls and ceiling, but before sealing the interior, Dad wired the place for electricity. Before long, using a Maytag washing machine motor we had brought with us and car batteries scrounged from garages in Salem and Mountain Home, he, these were dead batteries, but they were still usable. Um, he set up a six-volt electrical system. 
TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, only electrified the Ozarks 18 months later. Telephone service never came to the region while we were there. Once the plywood walls and ceiling were in place, we caulked to hide seams and nail holes as best we could and painted. Details were added to the house, such as a roofed stoop before the front door with a concrete step. We used a large flat rock as a stepping stone to the porch and its door on the right side. We, we visited second-hand stores in Mountain Home and in the uh, closest larger town, West Plains, Missouri, just r- uh, right over the border, to supplement the furniture we had bought. The lean-to became my bedroom with a single bed and tiny dresser. The large 35 by 25 foot open space of the main house became my parents' bedroom and living room, a screen separating the two. And after Dad put up a plywood divider, the kitchen. They also bought a wood-burning space heater for the living room, new cabinets, and a propane-fired stove for the kitchen. Besides the lack of electricity, we had no plumbing. Our bathroom was the ancient outhouse attached to the kitchen coop. Dishes and laundry and baths had to be done in a dishpan and in a tub. A small stand next to the front door held a pitcher and a shallow pan for hand washing, morning shaves, and other ablutions. Back to pioneer days. After eating cramped meals in the kitchen for a short while, we decided to box in half the porch and use it as a dining room. This worked well with a window enlarged into an open doorway directly from the kitchen. We also discovered that propane refrigerators were available and bought one in time to store perishables and once we had had acquired farm animals, milk and eggs. Dad and I hastened to walk the perimeter of those 365 acres. The land had once been surrounded with a split rail fence dating back, we figured, to at least the Civil War days. Although the rails were oak, they had either rotted or had been torn down over the decades. At least they marked the correct boundaries. Our property was divided roughly in half by a fair-sized creek running east and west. A floodplain from a few yards uh, in width to a quarter mile bordered the North Shore, an area that had been cultivated and still was almost clear of sprouts. On the south side, the land rose steeply to the boundary, covered with a heavy secondary growth of oak trees. The neighbors all raised hogs. For nearly a century, they had used the 365 acres as free grazing and fattening ground for their pigs, who devoured the tons of acres those oak trees produced every fall. Dad and I set out, he shouldering a roll, uh, shouldering roll after roll of web wire, I toting rolls of barbed wire, and we uh, built a solid fence all the way around the place. I was 12 years old and well on the way to my full height, eventually six feet. Dad had taught me carpentering skills, and I became his helper, his man Friday, in quotes because, indeed, I learned to work like a man, to carry heavy loads, endure sun and rain, Mm. hard knocks, and to be useful at all times. I developed the muscle and endurance 
to fill the requirements. It took us two or three weeks working dawn to dark to accomplish it all. During our work, it dawned on us that we were setting the stage for serious conflict with the neighbors. One of their best sources of nourishment for their yearly crop of hogs was now abruptly cut off. Once we were sure we could safely stock our place with cattle, Dad decided to purchase milk cows and beef calves to raise for eventual sale. Mother ordered 24 baby chicks, Rhode Island Reds, from Montgomery Ward's catalog. While I was in school, my parents drove to West Plains to attend the cattle, uh, cattle auction. They uh, bought a Jersey and a half Hereford cow, both good milkers, and five orphan calves one day old. We had a struggle keeping the calves alive since the newborns needed special nutrients to help their insides adjust to living in the world outside the womb. We had special colostrum powder from the vet that we added to the cow's skim milk mm. since whole milk was too rich. Two of the calves developed scours, which is uh, another uh, name for diarrhea yeah. anyway, and died. The, the other three made it through and eventually grew up enough to be sold on the market. We added more older calves later, and Jersey and Old Red, the two cow, cows, added babies of their own to our small herd. The, f the first day at the local consolidated school had been a revelation. The English teacher, the superintendent's wife, Mrs. Diggs, was well enough educated, but had a cold, dry, and strict manner in and out of class. The main the math teacher, Bathus Smith, was also our social studies teacher. He proved to be a good mathematician. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I'll take a drink of water. Yeah. Excuse me. This is fascinating. And I had just come from the uh, very sophisticated California school. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so he proved to be a good mathematician but was often at sea in any other subject. He did double duty as a teacher of history. For some reason, he began the first class talking about the wisdom of the ancient Greeks, probably because he admired Euclid's mathematical discoveries. He told us all about Socrates, whom he referred to as Socrates. I, of course, knew better. Hid my laughter and dashed into the house after school. Hey, Mom, guess what we learned today? All about Socrates. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> there was no orchestra of any kind of, or any kind of music at Viola High School, but a well-run business course taught by the math teacher's adult daughter and a popular sports program, which I joined. For years, perhaps ever since riding in the saddle in front of my father when I was a little over two, I had fantasized about owning my own horse. Alberta Han Hankinson, my California uh, correspondent and good friend, and I had continued corresponding, sending each other thick letters containing a close account of everything that was happening, and inevitably anywhere from one to several drawings of horses. I always showed them to my parents to underscore my longing. 
I pointed out how natural it would be, now that we lived on a farm, for me to have a riding horse. My parents gave no sign they took me seriously. <laughs> it was Saturday, December 3rd, my birthday, and my father had driven off on an errand of some sort before I was up for breakfast, leaving Mom and me to do all the chores. Mom appeared to be especially grouchy, which I attributed to my father's absence, but wondered what modest token I might receive for my birthday, perhaps at dinner. We heard the pickup before we could see it. The sideboards were up, and a bulky brown something was in the bed. A horse. Oh, my God. I ran to open the corral gate. Dad backed in and untied the horse's head. I I dragged over the ramp we had built to load and unload calves and let down the tailgate. Dad backed the horse out and down. The horse slipped on the ramp but regained his balance. Once on the ground, he reared with a shriek of rage and struck at Dad. There was no mistaking his intent. Dad stepped aside and yanked the rope and the horse came down to avoid falling. Go open the gate into the pasture. I ran and opened that gate. Dad tried to unclip the lead rope latch on the halter, but it was stuck, so he managed to unbuckle the halter, with the horse jerking and trying to step on his feet. But the horse's eyes had been watching me, and he knew the gate to open country was ajar. As soon as the halter came loose, he was off like a shot. Dad and I watched him gallop away a hundred yards or so, stop, turn to watch us, and snort, shaking his head. Dad snorted, too. Well, Florence, that's your birthday present. (laughs) Cost me $35 at auction this morning. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The horse had cheap, cheap in those days, and of course, there was a reason for that. The horse was... uh, was uh, unbroken and savage, so nobody wanted to buy anything like that. And my dad, uh, my dad was not careful enough to test him out and know uh, the dangers of this creature. This creature. But anyway, the horse had a heavy coat of winter hair. He was bay, reddish brown, with black mane, tail, and legs. Two white socks on his left rear and right front feet. He had a perfect white diamond on his forehead. I guessed he was 15 hands high. I shook my head. He's acting wild. Is he broke at all? The owner swears he's been ridden. He's supposed to be a quarter horse. Three years old and just gelded about a week ago. They hogtied him and did it with a pocket knife. He tried to kill them afterwards. He just tried to kill you too, Dad. My dad nodded. He seemed to mean it. Does he have a name? My dad made a face. Prince, not very original. (laughs) Nope. I said, I would have named him something more exotic, like Tristan or something. Not suitable. Avenger might come closer. (laughs) He's dangerous, Florence. I don't want you to go near him. But he's my birthday present. I don't want you hurt. Leave him alone. Okay, so, of course, I disobeyed my dad, and uh, the next, even that day, I think, I snuck out of the house. My dad was taking a nap, 
got a bucket, put some corn in the bottom of the bucket, went out into the pasture where the horse was grazing, shook the bucket, and he, Prince, raised his head. Uh, he, he knew the, the sound of corn rattling in a bucket, but he came no closer. He was standing there at attention. So I put the bucket down and walked away and just left it there. The next day, the bucket was empty, lying on its side with a dent because he he had pawed it, hoping uh, somehow miraculously to produce more corn in it. <laughs> uh, put more corn in it, and he uh, and shook the bucket, and he again came to attention and didn't come any closer. But the as time went on, this happened over several days. Uh, he would come closer and closer. And finally, he was reaching out with his neck stretched his, to its full extent to grab some corn out of the bucket, which I would hold. And then at last he came close enough, so I put a rope with a slip knot around his neck. And then holding the bucket um, in front of him so he would reach for it and follow me as I walked. I walked him into the orchard and tied the other end of the rope to a sturdy uh, apple tree. And then <clears throat> I took the bucket and walked away. And he tried, he jerked and tried to uh, to uh, break that rope, but instead he choked himself uh, to his knees. And I quickly went and, uh, and undid the, uh, the rope so that it, it wouldn't choke him anymore. But then I walked away again, and he tried again to break the rope, or, or at least to pull it loose. And finally, after three or four tries and getting choked each time, he stood still, at which point I gave him the corn. And after that, he never tried to get away when he was tied. And he, he would lead with anything around his neck. He would lead much more obediently than he led with a halter or a bridle. So uh, after I had broken him to stand still when he was tied, uh, the next day I decided to ride him. All I had was a bridle with a straight bit. In other words, it was the uh, kindest bit you can give a horse. Usually a, a bit uh, in a beginner's bridle will have a curve in the middle. Did you have a saddle? And no, no saddle. No saddle. So all I had was a bridle with a straight bit, which does not have any means of uh, stopping the horse. If the horse is really wild, he'll just get that bit in his teeth and off he'll go. I didn't know that. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, I had no saddle. I would see if he would buck me off. My dad was off somewhere, so I caught Prince again with corn slipped the bridle on him while holding him with the lead rope around his neck, led him to the corral fence and used it to mount him. He lunged from a stock still to a dead run, heading toward the web wire fence around the garden. I had not fixed, I had not tied the reins together. The right rein fell to the ground and I, of course, couldn't reach it. I was gripping him with my legs and pulling on the left rein to the point where his head was bent to the left, but he was still heading for that fence. Would he jump it? Turn in the last minute? Bareback, I couldn't stay on him either way. 
he turned, and I sailed over the fence and landed in a pile of rocks heaped there when we plowed the garden oh before planting vegetables. Yeah. I landed on my back. My breath was knocked out, so I couldn't get up right away. Mom came out of the house, screamed at Prince, picked up a heavy, heavy rock and threw it at him. It landed 10 feet in front of her, while Prince stood a little way off, no doubt laughing. <laughs> I did get up, bruised, but otherwise okay. Mother had thought I was badly injured or dead, so she embraced me and then scolded me fiercely. I told her I was fine, but was not going to let Prince get away with bad behavior. I mounted him again, this time with the reins tied together. He again took off at a run, and I couldn't control him. He had that straight bit in his teeth. Off he went across the field and straight toward the woods. Coming at us at high speed was an oak with a horizontal branch at just the right height to knock me off. He headed for that. I managed to slow him a bit and dismounted just before he went under that branch. I don't remember, but I think I must have caught him before long and led him back to the barn. The cows had to be milked and everyone fed after all. My dad was soon recon uh, reconciled to my work with the horse since I had already made some progress before he knew I had disobeyed him. I rode Prince bareback during the time between my birthday and Christmas and often after that. I wanted to learn to ride like an Indian. Oddly, Prince never bucked, but I taught him to rear on command like Roy Rogers or Gene Autry's horses. Prince tolerated me and might have been even... He would never stand for the approach of a man. For Christmas, since there were no pines or firs growing at that latitude, we cut a six-foot cedar that tapered to a point like a pine. We had kept treasured decorations from years past, including two strings of lights Dad had made using flashlight bulbs, one with the bulbs painted red, the other green. These worked very well with the six-volt lighting system he had rigged. Following our family tradition, Dad read aloud all of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, while Mom and I wrapped the Christmas presents. We made certain to decorate each package in a unique and beautiful way. We used native greenery and berries, made fancy bows, or cut out silhouettes of Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus with kneeling shepherds, or we cut out camels and figures of the Magi. We pasted them on pastel blue paper using gold ribbon to create desert sands and a sparkly piece of gold paper from somewhere to make the star in its rays. When we were done, no wealthy family's tree, trimmings, and packages could outshine ours, nor could it match the love that went into those preparations. Wow. The sentiment of joy, goodwill, and gratitude to the Almighty for his goodness surrounded us and lasted the entire Christmas season. Most of our presents to each other were useful items like clothing or tools. But that year, my main present was an old army saddle, all my parents could afford at that point. I was thrilled to put it to good use that very day. 
I rode Prince to visit neighbors who lived along Country Road 48, taking small packages filled with mom's homemade cookies and fudge to the kids I had learned to know and like. They were surprised at the gesture, but welcomed me and the presents, and that year began a small tradition in our neighborhood. And that is the story of our move to Arkansas. Wow. I, I mean, that's, that, that's it's unbelievable. First of all, I never knew that you lived in California. Do you know that? Yeah, yeah, only for one year. <laughs> yeah. And I, I loved it, and I remember every moment practically. <laughs> you know, you went from uh, singing, uh, not singing, but uh, uh, playing Gershwin, to uh, yes. you know, to, to <laughs> coming to the sticks, and the uh, and and you know, to to be out there in the woods. Yes, yes, it was the most uh, primitive place possible. I don't think my uh, my parents had any idea just how primitive and how hard it was. Uh, especially uh, we ha- because we had to rebuild the house <laughs> in order to have some shelter. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and and indeed, we were in that house and uh, using that stove, that uh, space heater, uh, before it got cold that winter. So we we worked like Trojans to to get uh, to get all that done in time. Uh, to save ourselves from suffering from the weather because Arkansas has a regular winter and it snows and and the whole thing. I mean, the Ozarks are high enough, I guess, um, that uh, it's certainly not southern weather at all. And we we discovered as time went on that uh, farming that place was virtually impossible. Uh, the, The land called bottom land down next to that creek uh we could grow crops there and we we uh, planted uh, uh milo maize and things like that that we could feed to the animals um but uh, and we had a uh, uh a garden a kitchen garden uh with vegetables and everything imaginable that you can grow uh so we uh, uh we were well fed uh, and we had our own beef if we wanted it, and certainly chickens and uh, milk and eggs and so on. So we were in no danger of starving. Uh, but it was hard, and we had to get up at 6 or earlier. I had to get up at 5 the first year uh, in order to get to the—I uh, had to walk to the to uh, County Road 48 and then down County Road a piece— almost a mile to to the bus stop to catch the bus to go into Viola High School, which was 20 miles away. So I had to be up very early and do the chores before I left and and so forth. And the second year, my dad dad had uh, taken uh, retirement by that time, um, uh, medical retirement, and had been told that uh, he would live for 10 more years uh, unless unless he had an operation that would take his stomach entirely uh, and hook his esophagus to his small intestine. And he had a 50-50 chance of surviving the operation. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, no, thank you. I'll, uh, I'll take the 10 years. And he did die. He died within 11 years mm-hmm. from that, that time. Uh, but in the meantime, um, 
he uh, he decided. Well, he uh, his his pay dropped, of course, once he was retired. So he was on retirement pay rather than regular um, pay. He he was his rank was major by that time, um, and uh, uh, so he decided he would teach. He had taught uh, already in high school, and so he. Uh, he volunteered to teach uh, history and politics, American uh, uh, political uh, history. And uh, uh, so he was very successful in that. He was very well liked. And he became the principal of that school. And he was principal when I graduated as valedictorian of the school, which was which was no feat, really, because... Uh, I'd had a good education, and those poor kids were just getting a little bit of it, um, thanks to my dad. Yeah. Um, uh, and anyway, so then I went to college, and uh, a year later, my parents sold that farm and uh, and moved to Kansas City. And my dad uh, started, uh, he, he decided he liked uh, the administration of children, of kids especially teenagers, oddly enough. Uh, and so he decided he would get the qualifications to become the president or dean of a small college. But he had a degree. He had an MS in engineering. Um, but he had to get an MA, PhD, or an MA uh, doctor of education, D.E.D., uh, in order to qualify how long did that take to to get? How long would a, a process? Uh, he took. Uh, let's see. He um, it took him four years. Wow. Yeah, and he went through everything. He completed uh, courses in summer school for the BA. Then he went on uh, at the uh, University of Missouri in uh, Columbia, Missouri, um, and got his MA. Uh, doctor of ed uh, and uh, wrote a dissertation and the whole thing and uh, and became uh, president of a little school uh, in Kansas called Highland College and um, it was uh, going bankrupt and he put it in the black and hired some uh, really good teachers for it and my mother was the librarian there and then he died of uh, of his wound, mm. he starved to death. Was what happened. He couldn't digest his food. Wow. So uh, he was an incredible human being. My father. Yeah. I'm impressed with uh, w how he handled running his own electricity and and all of that. I mean, a scholar is usually a scholar, but you know. Uh, He's a renaissance man in a sense. He was a farmer. He was a handyman. He was, uh, uh, you know, he was a soldier, right? He, uh, he was an engineer, uh, educator. Yeah. Uh, he was all of these things. <clears throat> if you don't mind, I, I, uh, I, I, I don't know why these are pressing questions for me, but they, they are. Um, did you, you mentioned uh, eating well. When, uh, yes. when when you got to Arkansas because of that, were you eating better in Arkansas than you, when you, when you were in California? No, uh, no, but uh, we we didn't lack uh, for food, 
in uh, in Arkansas. Right in the beginning, we had to buy everything, of course, uh, and that was that was kind of tough. But my dad was still on regular pay at that point too, um, and uh, it was in into the fall uh, when uh, when he retired, and then suddenly his pay dropped and. Uh, and the, that first winter was kind of tough. It really was. I mean, I, my parents didn't have uh, enough money to buy me a really good saddle. It was a good, solid saddle, but it was a military saddle. It was probably a turn-of-the-century saddle. Yeah. Um, and those military saddles are as hard as they can be. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and they're ugly as well. Uh, but, yeah. But I didn't. I really was not worried about that. I was uh, happy that I had a pretty good-looking horse, and uh, I could ride all over the place. And uh, you I eventually pretend. broke him. You eventually. Uh, uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> Do you think he enjoyed you riding him, Prince? I'm sorry. Did what? Uh, did Prince enjoy you riding him? I don't know whether he actually enjoyed it, but he certainly tolerated me. I think he enjoyed going places. In the company. Uh, something To see something new. Uh, but once I left for college, uh, he began jumping out. He was a good jumper, very good jumper. Uh, he jumped out of uh, over our fences and went and rounded up the neighbor's mares and brought them back. <laughs> no kidding. Wow. They must have loved yes. that. He, he thought he was still a stallion. Yeah, uh, he, wow. He, he might have been proud cut. In other words, he still had some testosterone. Oh he God. obviously did. Yeah. Uh, so uh, he, otherwise, he wouldn't have had the impulse to go gather everybody's mares and bring them back. So the neighbors were not happy, and my dad was forced to sell him and sold him to somebody, at, at, he said, a doctor in Kansas City. So uh, he went to a good place, but it was to a man, and I, uh, I hope that he didn't get abused because uh, men had had uh, cast tried to castrate him anyway, and uh, he was furious at it at them at, at all men. He figured they were all just the same. <laughs> they would they were all enemies. You know, I'm I'm so impressed with young Florence that that you are able to uh, uh, break him. I mean that's it's amazing. Your parents were both saying, "Forget it. You can't, you can't do it." You know, and they were looking out for your best interest, of course. And and yet you you ignored it and you did it. It's it just amazing to me. Yeah, well, that was me. I had uh, my mindset on it, and uh, and I had my wish. I had a horse, and of course I wanted to ride him and make him into a uh, a proper horse, <laughs> which I did. Yeah, well, yeah. You know, the other thought. I I don't know why this. Why this uh, strikes me, but uh, you mentioned the creek. Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, was it a uh, was it a deep creek? Were there fish in this creek? Uh, what was the length of the creek or the uh, width of the creek? Uh, the creek was probably oh, I'd say twenty feet wide. Uh, it was a shallow creek, but it was um, it had uh, fish in it. What kind of fish? Sunfish and, and maybe catfish and, uh, in, in the pools. I mean, anything that um, you ate? Did you eat anything that you caught? And yeah, there was there was a type of fish that was similar to salmon. That uh, every spring, when uh, uh, that, by the way, Norfolk Lake, 
uh, was dammed. The Norfolk River was dammed just before the war, and uh, a lake, uh, of course, had been uh, created by that. Uh, and unfortunately, it was uh, at the other side of our, pla- our place, uh, away from our uh, buildings and so on, so we didn't get to enjoy lakeside property the way we should have. Right. Uh, I think if we had actually stayed there any longer, uh, that my dad would have probably built a house over by the lake. Uh, with the road going into it and so forth, uh, but uh, he decided that was that was not his destiny in life. He will, he wanted to be a college administrator, and he became one. Um, so uh, he was. I guess I inherited my character from both parents because my mother was just as uh, stubborn and uh, and uh, willful, and once she had made up her mind, that was it. Also. But my dad, I mean, uh, as ill as he was, he went through all that studying and uh, uh, and wrote a dissertation that uh, was uh, was well thought of and and so on, and uh, tried to resurrect that school. Uh, and when he died, of course, the people of Kansas there in Highland, Kansas. Um, Replaced him with the with the coach, the football coach, oh, and the and he allowed the college to go down. So the college went bankrupt, and I don't think it exists anymore. Wow, Highland College. Yeah, sad story there. Yeah, what what a what a story. What a what a memoir this is going to be. Um, <laughs> yes, one thing after another. <laughs> Well, what, uh, how far into your memoir, if you don't mind us asking, uh, uh, are you? I am up to about 1973 at this point. Wow. Uh, and uh, I'm talking about my uh, teaching career in Rochester, New York. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the amazing thing to me, too, well, I mean, it's all amazing. Your life is amazing. Uh, but one of the really wonderful things is the the uh, ground you covered you know from the Ozarks to California to upstate New York I mean to me yes. well that's not me. all from uh, uh, of course I went uh, I went to uh, Park College now Park University uh, which is just outside Kansas City and I got my BA there and then I went to the University of Iowa, where I met my husband and married him in 1955. And so uh, 10 years after the events that I was uh, telling about in this, in this reading, uh, I was married to Kurt Weinberg, who is a professor and a German. He was a German Jew who had escaped Hitler. So he was a Holocaust survivor, really. Yeah, he was. <laughs> had been in a concentration camp, uh, uh, a Vichy camp, fortunately, so he managed to survive that and then fight uh, in the Italian campaign in the American Army uh, in G2, which is Army Intelligence, and uh, because he knew all the languages, and he was uh, interrogator of prisoners of war, never had to lay a hand on anybody because he could outwit uh, the prisoners and get them to uh, yeah. t- tell him what he needed to know without 
injuring them in any way. Uh, so anyway, uh, Corrett uh, was teaching for the year, only one year, at the University of Iowa. And uh, uh, the next year, he, he got a job in Vancouver, British Columbia. And I was married to him, so I went to Vancouver, British Columbia. And we spent seven years in uh, Canada. And then he got a full professorship with tenure at the University of Rochester. And we spent 28 years in Rochester. Uh, and, of course, I got my Ph.D. from the University of Rochester, uh, M.A. from British Columbia, then Ph.D. Rochester, and uh, taught for 22 of those 28 years uh, at St. John Fisher College in Rochester. And I have a good reading from uh, from that, too, <laughs> but but not today. <laughs> yeah. Just wonderful. Uh, what, a, what a life. Still going strong. Listen. 89 years young. Do I have the uh, age right? Is it 80, 89 years young? Yep, you've got it. Wow. And I'm already something like 50 days into my 90th year. <laughs> yes. My I'll complete it, complete it next December. Way to go. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's just, just amazing. What, what a life, what a career, and still going strong. I, I you know, I can't wait to, wait to hear more of the the memoir, uh, it, you write so beautifully, and oh, thank you. The way you describe the uh, the the barn half collapsed uh, like a like a monster, like a, a creature, you know, it's just just um, <laughs> yeah, very vivid. But I and and uh, you use you utilize a lot of the imagery, the same imagery that you would use when you're writing your uh, uh, historic fiction. Yes, right. Yeah, just <laughs> uh, wow, just and I, I, I'm much different. Yeah, you know, and and I, I won't, I won't keep you too long. But I'm fascinated. And I'm sure listeners are fascinated. Uh, how do you find writing the memoir? It's, you know, it's the first time you're you're doing this. Is it uh, cathartic? Is it therapeutic? Is it painful? Is it all of those things? Are there aha moments where you completely forgot? Um, about a, 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 an instance, and uh, and it came back to you. Uh, how yeah. do you like the process so far? Uh, I enjoy the process. Sometimes I get bored with it, <laughs> but uh, but it is cathartic. It is uh, uh, it is stimulating sometimes, and sometimes very moving. And to remember uh, those things so vividly and write about them, and. Uh, uh, so it is. Uh, it certainly is engrossing, uh, something to do. But uh, but I really do prefer to write uh, uh, to write historical fiction, and not about myself. But uh, but I really think that my own experiences uh, as an American female uh, who lived uh, three quarters of the 20th century. Uh, I think I, my testimony, my witness to the events and the conditions uh, that uh, the normal people, the ordinary people in this country uh, confronted during those years is worth recording uh, for posterity because this country was still 
uh, in very primitive conditions in 1945, certainly. The Ozarks didn't have telephone uh, communication yet uh, when we uh, moved away. So, uh, Running water. You didn't have running water, right? Yeah. We did not have running water. Well, uh, we actually, my dad fixed that, too. <laughs> we had running water in the house, and uh, I don't. We did not have enough uh, uh, power uh, to uh, pump it to the barn. So, uh, and not enough money. I think the problem was not the power; it was the uh, money to buy the pipes that it would have taken yeah. to lay the pipes all the way up to the barn, and it was uphill. Besides, <laughs> amazing. That's yeah, amazing. and uh, you know what a. What a difference. And here you are, you're speaking on the eve of a 18-degree uh, 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 day in San Antonio, Texas. And, uh, well, Doc, I, I, we won't talk before uh, Christmas, most likely. Uh, so to, to everyone who's listening, I'm, I, I, I'm sure you join, in, uh, join with me to wish everyone a happy Hanukkah and, uh, and uh, subsequently a, a Merry Christmas coming up. Absolutely, yes. And of course, a happy Hanukkah, which, uh, uh, which my my husband, of course, uh, was uh, was very fond of, and uh, uh, he was he was a non-practicing Jew, but uh, but he certainly did uh, take note of all the the holidays. And so, wow. yes. Well, Doc. So a happy 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 uh, uh, Christmas to everybody. Yeah, and we. We know everyone has a lot of, lot of options, and we appreciate them tuning in to us each and every week. And uh, we'll, we'll get more uh, from the memoir uh, as it goes on, I'm sure uh, uh, Doc will, uh, will share with us. But what a, what a treat. Frank McKay signing off. Uh, you've been listening to the Florence Weinberg Show, and we'll see you all next time. After Christmas, and Merry Christmas to everyone. Happy Hanukkah once again. Uh, we'll see you all next time on the Florence Weinberg Show.